Amen. Amen. We'll invite you to stay standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we are in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 17. Here's the word of the Lord. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. So good to be gathered together. Praise God for the celebration of baptism in this church. New life and awesome to see and just hear the different uh, testimonies as we've gotten a chance to be uh, um, 
uh, giving the baptism class and explaining how to give a testimony about Jesus and his salvation, what an honor it is to be a church that baptizes regularly and uh, continue uh, to see God save and grow people here. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at Doxa. It's a joy to bring you God's word uh, this morning. Besides it being an awesome Sunday because it's Baptism Sunday, it's also an important weekend in our nation's history. And briefly want to say, Happy Independence Day to all of you. All right. I'm thankful for this nation. I'm thankful that God has blessed this nation tremendously. And it's very popular right now to like dunk on the nation, like, yeah, Happy Independence Day, but here's all of our problems. And we got problems. We got lots of problems. It's a tumultuous time. But now is not the time to do that. It's just to say this. Happy Independence Day and praise God for a nation for whom freedoms under God have been uh, identified and have been fought for. And we are thankful to God for the nation that he has us in. That being said, our priority here at Doxa will always be the prioritization of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen? Revelation 1.5 tells us that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, every single one of them all the time, including every one of them today. And that's actually the theme, probably obvious from the verses I just read, that we are going to highlight today, Jesus reigning and ruling. So much to cover, so little time. So we're going to jump in. The title this morning, A Covenant That Only God Can Fulfill. We ended chapter 6 yesterday, uh, yesterday, uh, last Sunday. We ended chapter 6 last Sunday with a, a celebration. David and the people of Israel celebrating the Ark of the Covenant having been returned to Jerusalem. David exuberantly celebrating and dancing. And if you got to see Scott last week... You saw some of those holy moves, you know what I'm saying? And if you didn't get to see it, it's worth watching, I have to tell you. I heard, I heard that that was actually not planned. And so you might call that a move of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not so sure. You might call it that. You know, Scott, I have been to more than a few weddings with him, and the truth is, dude can tear up the dance floor pretty well, given the opportunity, all right? Just saying. So, he's also, little known fact, he is a, like, walking jukebox. It's a weird, hidden talent of his. Now, don't tell him I call it a talent. If I whisper, he can't hear me on the screen, because he's not here, right? Just keep this between friends. He's got a weird singing ability. Not a good ability, but just can sing anything, and, and it's, it's something else to, to be around here and all that. So you've got a multi-talented lead pastor, I will say that. All right, so chapter 6 ends with much celebration and the Ark of the Covenants in Jerusalem. And peace is starting to pervade the kingdom of Israel. David's reign is solidified and his influence is growing and if you open a commentary uh, to read about chapter 7, you'll see any number of things stated as a lead-up to the commentary. Things like this chapter, chapter 7, and especially this covenant with David, becomes the central theological focus of the Old Testament from this point forward. 
that it is the most crucial theological Old Testament declaration related to the messianic hope and expectation of the Jews. One commentator said a reader could drown in the ink spilled on this chapter. You wouldn't want to have to do that, but apparently you could. So, I've got my work cut out for me. This is probably one of the more underrated yet tremendously important uh, sections of all of the Old Testament, really all of the scriptures. So here's our big idea this morning. God's covenant with David shows God's sovereign power to establish an eternal kingdom through David's greater son. That's what we're going to see. This passage oozes with God's sovereignty. It is just everywhere throughout. God reminding David of his work in Israel and in his own life. God laying down plans and giving promises. And God as the only one that can fulfill a covenant like the one he gives to King David. Let me give you, though, a working definition of the word sovereign or sovereignty There are other formal definitions I'm sure you can find, but it's kind of a churchy word. I wouldn't want you to be not clear on the meaning of this. Here's here's a single short definition of sovereignty. It is God's absolute power and freedom to do all that he wills however he wishes. God's absolute power and freedom to do all that he wills however he wishes. So let's see God's sovereignty on display in this text. We've got four uh, uh, themes of sovereignty in the text, and then the fifth is going to be sovereign fulfillment and how we see this fulfilled in God's Word. So firstly this, sovereign presence. We're going to see sovereign presence in the first eight and a half verses. So let's get into the text here. Chapter 7 opens with a new character, uh, Nathan, a prophet in Israel. Nathan's going to have a couple of important um, uh, places, uh, to, um, parts to play, I should say, in 2 Samuel. And this is really the first one. And, and Nathan is speaking to King David, uh, presumably maybe in his home, uh, maybe on the roof. You know, you can use your imagination to see them in one evening. He's relaxing with his, the prophet Nathan. And, and he mentions an uneasy feeling he has. He says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And before David even lays out what his suggestion is, is probably implied by what he says, Nathan jumps in and says, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. The prophet of the Lord blesses uh, the king of Israel in whatever you're seeking to do, go and do it. God is with you. But that same night, verse 4, The word of the Lord came to Nathan. I don't know if Nathan was praying or if Nathan was asleep and God woke him up. We're not told, but the word of the Lord comes to the prophet. And it kind of feels like to me, it's almost like a tap, tap, tap. Like, hey, you got a little ahead of yourself. Nathan, you missed a step. You could have taken that one to me. So God's going to correct Nathan and David through this 
uh, proclamation and then this covenant. Go and tell my servant David, God starts with. I love that because if you see the first three verses, it doesn't even say David's name. It just says the king, the king, the king three different times. And then who is David to God? My servant. Love that juxtaposition. And the point would be this that the greatest among us is never anything more than God's servant. Regardless of political clout or authority or expertise or fame in some field or some skill that you have, being an influential leader or person, you're never more, regardless of your status among men, you're never more than a servant of God. And so God is going to correct Nathan, and he says, hey, You go and you tell my servant David this. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now I want you to uh, read particularly these next five verses or so with a little imagination as you read it with whatever the voice for God is in your own head as you read this. Like it needs a little snark to it. It needs a little irony to it. I think a little sarcasm to it. God has just heard, because God hears everything, he's heard David make a comparison between his awesome cedar house that he had built from uh, back in chapter 5. The king of Tyre sent masons and contra- uh, construction men to build this house for David. And then, and then God's poor Ark of the Covenant is in this lowly tent. David's making this comparison and God's like, are you kidding me? Will you, you're going to build me a house? You think I need a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. I was with them always. My presence is all uh, uh, omnipresent, right? It's all places at all times, the sovereign presence of God. I've been with the people everywhere. Even in their wandering, because of my judgment, I was with them in the desert. I was with them in the time uh, of conquest with Joshua after Moses. I was with them in the period of the judges after that, even though everyone, it seemed like, was doing uh, uh, evil in the eyes of God, but whatever was right in their own eyes, there's mostly very poor judges and rulers and the people that were supposed to shepherd Israel largely didn't, but I was with my people always. Not only that, David, I was with you when you were a little shepherd boy. Do you remember the day? Remember, David? Youngest of eight, little puny runt, your dad didn't even bring you out to Samuel. He just brought the seven older boys because you were off in the field. But I raised you up. You're going to build me a house you, you want to talk comparison, well, let's talk about who, who spoke the cedar into existence that you now live in. Who spoke it into existence? Dave, God did, David. Ha, God did. You're going to build me a house? I've raised you up to be prince over my people. I have cut off your enemies from before you. You have con- you, people have sung songs about you since the days of Saul, but don't forget, David... I'm the one who ultimately gave you those victories, gave you that conquest, has given you this territory and this kingship over the people Israel. So I see this as a 
playfully yet serious rebuke here from God. Again, using some sense of irony and reminding just who this God is. And 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah would say it this way. This is actually God through Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So he lays down to David through Nathan, the sovereign presence of God in all places. He's not in need of a house as in a temple. And then he keeps going into uh, laying down some plans, some sovereign plans that God has for David. Look at the second half of verse 9. It says this, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now using this language, make for you a great name to the Jewish mind, hearing this covenant or having it read for them, this would have hearkened them right back to Abraham from the book of Genesis, the father of the Israelite people, formerly called Abram, eventually changed to Abraham. Abram was uh, from a pagan family, was called out by God and obeyed God in faith, believing in his promises. And God gave Abraham a covenant in chapter 12 and 15 and 17, different promises to Abraham such that he would have innumerable descendants, more than the stars of the sky. He, through him, uh, the, the offspring through Abraham would bring blessing to the whole world. And then to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God promised kings would come through his own family line. And so when God tells David, the king, I'm going to make for you a great name, God is now centralizing or narrowing the scope of the Abrahamic promise into David and David's family line. David is a descendant of Abraham, and through David's line will come kings, as we'll see, a dynasty family of kings. So it's not a necessarily different covenant in terms of uh, different goals, but it's a furtherance and continuance of that. I will make for you a great name, hearkening back to Abraham. And then he moves on to the people of Israel in David's day when he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. And so the people of Israel will be dwelling secure. He uses the language of planted in the land. And that would take the Jewish mind back to Exodus and the promise of a promised land flowing with milk and honey. But then through the disobedience and the judgment God gave that generation, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And then through Joshua, they started their conquest of the promised land, God driving out pagan nations so that he could give his people the promised land. But it was not peaceful. 
It was, it, there was their own sin. There were many enemies. There were faithless rulers. There was King Saul, the disaster of a first king, one conflict after another. But now Israel will abide in unfathomable peace and rest in the land of Israel under King David, which is exactly what they experienced. And then God moves back to David when he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now there's a play on words here because David wants to build God a house as in a temple. And, and indeed, David's son Solomon is going to do that, but not because uh, uh, God needed it. It was really there for the people more so than it was for God's sake. And that's going to be allowed to happen, but that's not what God is promising David. It's a play on words. You want to build me a house, I'm going to make you a house, as in a family dynasty of kings. Through you, there will be a house dynasty, one ruler after another, through your family line. So God lays down these three sovereign plans one for David, and then one for Israel under David, and then one for the future of David's family. I will make you a house. We see God's, again, sovereignty all over. In two and a half verses right there, God mentions himself or his activity six different times. So the center of this might seem like it's David because of what David's being given or promised as plans, but ultimately God is the center of this text. God's sovereign ability to promise it in the first place and then fulfill it. This is a God-centered text in covenants. He lays down these sovereign plans and then he's going to move forward to sovereign promise. He alone is able to make these kinds of promises that he makes to David. Starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father. So David, after you die, here's what's going to come. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, in the near future, this is clearly speaking of his son Solomon, because he says that he will build a house for my name, which as we read First and Second Chronicles is exactly what uh, Solomon did. He built the first temple in Jerusalem. But then he also says, I'm going to establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. We're going to come back to the eternal part of this momentarily. But in verse 14, he says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Once again, this language continues to churn in the mind of Israel, or in the mind of the Jewish people, hearkening back to either Abraham or the Exodus repeatedly in this. Because God called Israel my firstborn son back when he called them out of Egypt. God had developed a covenant relationship with the people of Israel such that he had a familial and intimate relationship with the people as a father would to a son. But the, the purpose was not only the intimate relationship there and the bond that God would have with David's descendants, David's kingly descendants, but also there's going to be discipline. 
these human descendants of David would sin. And as a good father would, God will discipline them when they commit iniquity, he says. And this is very clearly played out in the life of Solomon himself, the very next king after David. Tragically, the end of Solomon's reign led to the dissolution of the nation of Israel as a judgment from God, which you can read in 1 Kings chapter 11. Yet, he says, God says in 1 Kings 11 to Solomon, yet for the covenant with David, I'm paraphrasing, yet for the covenant with David, I will not allow David's line to be abandoned because of my special covenant with David. And what happened right after Saul, I say uh, Solomon, excuse me, when I say right after, I mean in the couple of generations after, was the breaking up of the kingdom of Israel, such that 10 tribes in the north were called Israel, and the two remaining tribes were called Judah, and those were David's descendants. Those who reigned in Judah were the kingly descendants of David. Now, Assyria eventually conquered the north, and Babylon eventually conquered the south. So much of that is the span of the rest of Old Testament history, how the north fell and how the south fell. But even so, God had promised to his servant David that his love would not depart from his descendants, that though there would be discipline, there would be judgment, his love would not depart like it did from Saul, who he put away from before David. And faithful Jews through the centuries after David were banking on and holding to the promise that God had given to David that he would establish a kingdom forever through a descendant of David. Despite the sinfulness of the kings or even the few good ones that they had, they even died. There was ups and downs, peaks and valleys. But those who were faithful to God's word clung to his promise that there would yet be a descendant of David to come. And this gets to our fourth theme of God's sovereignty in the text, which is the theme of sovereign permanence. Read verse 16 and 17 again with me. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God not only promises kings, God not only assures David that Israel under David will have great peace and prosperity, but he's pushing it out into eternity. This will be established, your throne, your kingdom. I will establish it forever. And so despite the tragedy of Israel's history after David, God still promised this eternal kingdom. And so the hope, you have to understand what this covenant produced in the people of Israel, this hope of a Messiah, of a deliverer, By the way, the Hebrew word Messiah is the Greek word Christos or Christ. That by the time we get closer and closer to the time of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, they are awaiting 
an anointed one, a king after David's line, a descendant of David, a son of David who would come. And the prophets wrote repeatedly, again, a central theme from this moment forward in the Old Testament was David, his throne, his kingdom, God's promise. Such that Isaiah, 300 years after David, writes this, God through Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, this is a classic Christmas passage, but listen with these ears about David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. What will accomplish this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 300 years later, Isaiah's writing in a low period for Israel, and yet he knows that he can bank on the promise such that a son will be given who will be raised up in such a way just as God promised that will sit on the throne of David over his kingdom. He will establish it forevermore. Isaiah clearly has got 2 Samuel in mind with this prophecy, and he says, God, God will see us through. Isaiah was still 700 years before Jesus. God will see his promise through. Commentator Ralph, uh, Dale Ralph Davis um, says this regarding the conclusion of the covenant. He says, death does not annul it, sin cannot destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. Love that. So the scene closes, God giving this remarkable promise to David through Nathan. It's a crescendo moment. Your throne shall be established forever. But the history of Israel would look anything but for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And so we need to ask, what of sovereign fulfillment? Has this been fulfilled? Has God been faithful to this covenant with David? And I know, I know that the Sunday school answer would be, well, yes, because of, that's not a trick question, Jesus, I heard it loudest over here, that's the right answer for the record. Okay, we can all go home. You're welcome. I gave you 15 minutes of your day back. Not true. Don't get up. Don't get up. You got, there's so much more to see. There's so much more to see. Yes, Jesus. But let's see how the scriptures show us the fantastic way that God has fully been faithful to this covenant with David. I'm going to give you three principles of interpreting your Bible. Very simple, but very important. And then we'll jump in to see three ways that God has fulfilled this covenant. Number one, regarding how to interpret Scripture, remember this, Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. One passage related to another or related to the whole of the Bible is the safest way to have a guardrail to make sure you, we don't get wonky using our imagination with things. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Number two, interpret the less clear passages 
with the more clear passages or by them. Interpret the less clear by the more clear passages. And then number three, interpret what is earlier in light of what comes later or of what is fuller. Interpret what is earlier in light of what comes later or what is fuller. That one in particular is huge for the Davidic covenant because we need to ask how did later prophets in the Old Testament, but especially Jesus and the apostles, interpret and understand this covenant that God made with David. That's an authoritative interpretation if we can see how the apostles inspired by God the Holy Spirit and Jesus, God in the flesh, how how they talk about or write about this Davidic covenant. So that's a ramp up to see what we're going to see. I've got four verses on here, uh, uh, passages. I'm not going to go to 1 Peter 2. You can write that down to see the relationship of the church as the true temple of God now, but we're not going to make that point now, so I'm going to make the remaining three. And each of those uh, uh, references or passages are are just a smattering of possible places we could have gone. But I hope you have nimble fingers. Anybody need to stretch their fingers? We're going to turn some pages right now. One of my favorite podcasts, the Just Thinking Podcast, that's their slogan. We turn pages. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a biblical theology of how God has fulfilled this covenant. And we're going to turn to quite a few places or I will reference places. And so if you're a note taker and a good student, I'd encourage you to chase these down yourself. The first way we see God fulfill this is simply Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the greater son of David who would come to completely fulfill the covenant. Not partly now and partly later, but completely fulfill this covenant to David. So important to the apostles who wrote the New Testament was this fact that you see it in the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's like a title to everything Matthew's about to say particularly uh, writing to the Jews as Matthew did. Matthew has an angle toward uh, a Jewish apologetic, if you will, about Jesus. And in the very first verse, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the rest of the genealogy matters, right? He's going to write, there's more to the genealogy of uh, the human relationship Jesus has to his descendants. But It's the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the one who fulfills this. The prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and Zechariah all wrote about David. They were all in some measure concerned with or consumed with how would God see fit to fulfill this covenant to David with a future son of David. It was burned in the collective heart and collective theology of Israel, longing for a son of David who would come to establish an eternal kingdom. And so how do we see this play out in the life of Jesus? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're not going to turn to everywhere I reference. 
Some of you got to have nimble thumbs on your phone, right? You're doing this. Others of you are turning your pages. Very good. It's not going to be on the screens. I want you to see it in your Bible. Lean over to a neighbor if you need to. You need to see this. I'm going to go through three places very quickly. This is the, the end of, uh, near the end of Jesus' life before he is betrayed and falsely tried and then crucified. But in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, not going to read the verses, but this is where the story is that two blind beggars see Jesus coming uh, out of Jericho and they cry out. What do they cry out? Lord, have mercy on me. Who? Son of David. And they say it twice, even after people shh them, rebuke them. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Here's what's so phenomenal. The physically blind had spiritual sight to know who Jesus was. They cry out to him as Lord, Lord Yahweh God, Lord, have mercy. You are the son of David. And God heals them. So these blind men knew who Jesus was, the fulfillment of the promise. And then just a few verses later, Matthew 21, verse 9, the triumphal entry. What does the crowd chant in verse 9? Hosanna to who? The Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save, deliver us. You're the Son of David. We welcome you. We celebrate you. They celebrated Jesus as the son of David. And then Matthew 22, Matthew 22, starting in verse 41, Jesus has been having a back and forth with some religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're trying to get him on questions. They're trying to get him a zinger so that he'll either get wrapped up in his words or say something against the law or teach something against their teaching. And he just nails every one of their questions. And then he turns it on them in verse 41. And he says, it says, while the Pharisees are gathered together, Jesus asked a question. And he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. Okay, good. Check. Correct. Second question. How is it then that David, in the spirit, I love that. Remember, in the spirit, inspired by God, David says, and this is Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. They were stumped by that question that David, in some way inspired by the Holy Spirit, could, could say in Psalm 110.1, by the way, Psalm 110.1 is the most often quoted verse in the New Testament of the Old Testament. It was central to the apostles' teaching, especially to the Jews, that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, is another version of saying that as well. That David knew that this descendant of his would in some way be his Lord. He may not have known how, but he knew by faith whether through revelation or simply meditation on God's promise. We're not told, but he knew. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. So this son of David is also the Lord over David. 
Now we need to see this. Number two, Jesus reigns on David's throne today and forever. Jesus reigns on David's throne today and forever. Now, there are good men and women who disagree on this point, but I want to try to show you from the scriptures why I so strongly believe this to be true. We first need to recognize what God was doing in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. They go together. The Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem, representing God's presence and God's reign over his people. And then as far as we can tell, immediately after that, the very next event recorded is the covenant between God and David. That God put his throne connected to David's throne. God's kingdom connected to David's kingdom. God's reign connected to David's reign. 1 Chronicles 29.23, write that down. I'll quote it for you right now. 1 Chronicles 29.23. When Solomon became king, David's son, what did he sit on? It says this, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David. Wow. The throne of David was the throne of the Lord even back then. God had so tied himself and his reign to David and his descendants. Now, most fully this is going to come in Jesus, but the throne of David is the throne of God. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, another Christmas passage in July for you. Here's what Gabriel said to Mary. Again, listen afresh to this. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Gabriel promises that God is going to give this son of Mary, Jesus, the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Clear tie to 2 Samuel 7 and the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. But the question might remain, when did the Lord give Jesus this throne. If I say that's already happened, that Jesus is on this throne, do we see that take place? I believe we do in Acts chapter 2. Turn there with me, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 25, Peter is preaching the first Christian sermon. The Holy Spirit fell on the 120. They were speaking uh, uh, languages they did not know, but that the people from other nations could understand. So the gospel and the mighty works of God are going out to many nations all at once who are gathered in Jerusalem. Peter stands up and begins preaching. And I'm going to pick it up in the middle of his sermon. I'm going to read a good portion of it here because you've got to see how Peter centralizes David and the fulfillment of this in Jesus. Starting in verse 25, Peter says, For David says concerning him, that's Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you in confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, this is David, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Answer, at the ascension of Jesus, he received the throne. Remembering 1 Chronicles 29.23, That even Solomon was seated on the throne of the Lord. It was wed together as one. Jesus sits on the throne today. Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2. Tell us over and over, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God now. This covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus who sits on the throne of David, which is the throne of the Lord. God has sovereignly and completely fulfilled this Davidic covenant in Jesus Christ. And thirdly this, all who are in Christ receive the blessings of the Davidic covenant. All who are in Christ receive the blessings of the Davidic covenant. As the book of Acts moves forward, we see the gospel spreading like wildfire primarily throughout Jewish regions But just as Jesus promised, it would go out from there. And it was persecution, including the stoning of Stephen, that really sent them out beyond the Jewish regions. And by the time Acts 15 comes, you have a council that's called together because the Jewish Christians are not sure what to do about all this. Peter had a vision in Acts 10. He preaches to Gentiles. Many are getting saved, and they're not sure. Should there be two different churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church, or is this one Is this one people of God, all of them in Jesus Christ? And in Acts 15, 13 to 17, James, the brother of Jesus, stands and speaks and makes clear that God was fulfilling the promise through Amos to bring together one people of God, all whom God would call to himself. And how do we get into this people of God? How do we come into this covenant, particularly the new covenant of Jesus in his blood, but also the blessings of the Davidic covenant in Jesus? How do we get in? By grace, through faith, in Jesus as Lord. Being united to Christ by faith gives you an inheritance of all the blessings that Jesus has won for us. 
And it's similar by analogy to how Israel was blessed under David. They were citizens of his kingdom, secure from all enemies, and they experienced rest so long as David was king. Except that you and I who are in Christ receive these blessings eternally, whereas Israel received them temporally. Christ came ushering the kingdom of God, dying for the sins of all who would trust in him and rising again. Rising on the third day, ascending 40 days after that, he is now seated at the right hand of God, reigning from heaven over all the universe, and he now dispenses the blessings of the new covenant people that he has bought for himself. Eternal citizenship in his kingdom, eternal security from all enemies, eternal rest through the king's reign. Christ's kingly reign extends forever. And the blessings of his reign come to his people. Have you trusted in Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God? To trust in Jesus is to acknowledge that you don't do it on your own. To acknowledge that you are deserving of the king's judgment for your sin. To renounce all man-made efforts towards self-salvation, whether it's religion or irreligion. To repent of all sin and to embrace Jesus as Lord. He is Lord. That's not the issue for you personally. Is he your Lord or are you continuing in rebellion against the Lord of the universe to this day? To receive him is to bend the knee spiritually to Jesus as Lord of all and Jesus as Lord of you. And when you do that with a cry of your heart in faith, Jesus, have mercy on me. You are the King. You are the Lord. Be my Lord. You receive all his benefits, such as forgiveness of every one of your sins, cleansing from all your shame, eternal life in his name, the presence of the Holy Spirit empowering your new life, adoption by God to be his child, union with Christ so that all his benefits become again yours eternally. And he welcomes all who now turn in faith, whom he is drawing to himself, who he's opening the eyes of by his grace and by his power to see and recognize his lordship. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, so much has just been said. So much perhaps that might be new to show the fulfillment of your promises to David God, I pray that the words of my mouth would not be the point, but that your word would be the point. The truth of your word would be established in our hearts, that your reign over all, Jesus, would be established for us, that we would trust that you are the son of David, that you reign on the throne forever, that you will one day return, you will one day consummate all things in a new heaven, in a new earth. You will judge the living and the dead in a final and eternal sense such that you will dwell with your people even more fully and more consummated than you have yet with us by the Spirit. We long for that day, Jesus. We long for your return. We love your reign over us. May you be glorified in our church, be glorified in our lives as we disperse from here, living in your kingdom and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.